0: everybody. It's The One. It's been a long time. It's been like months. I didn't think it would last this long, but it just seems to never end. So I said, damn it, I'm going to restart the podcast. And I'm so excited with my, my uh, first guest. Is somebody that I've been thinking about for a long time. It's such a weird story. Back when I was a teenager, uh, I guess it had to be 78 or 1977. I'm not sure. There's this guy that puts out an amazing album. Every song on it has, a ki- it has a killer pop hook. And everybody loves it. It's played on the radio all the time in Northern California, where I'm from. The album was called Close Personal Friend. And it was, it was incredible. I went and actually saw this guy. I was like, I, I might have been the first co- concert I went to. He was opening for the Knack and the Police. And I saw him at Zellerback Auditorium. I think that was either my first concert or it was when I went and saw Cheap Trick and Blue Oyster Cult, which was at around the same time. But who cares? The fact is, I thought this guy was going to, like, he was amazing, and then he, there's no second album. He just kind of, like, rides off into the sunset. It's the weirdest thing. And so I've been trying to track him down. His name is Robert Johnson. Uh, there's a, I know there's other people named Robert Johnson. This is a different Robert Johnson. This guy has been collaborating with everybody, from ZZ Top, the Rolling Stones, Mark Boland, John Entwistle, uh, even the Judds, and... Uh, Sesame Street. He's got a new album out. I, I'm so shocked to hear that he has a new album out, and hilariously, it's called "I'm Alive," because I thought he was dead. Robert, how are you?
1: Hey, Greg. I'm I'm doing really well, and it's an honor to be the chosen one for the Greg Gutfeld Podcast Comeback Special 2020.
0: <laughs> yes,
1: yes. The world has missed I... you. The radio world has missed you. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I, There you go. I had to put in a couple of power chords for you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you play, you know what's interesting? You play really fast, don't you? I mean, I remember, I mean, the, the, the guitar work in the first album was pretty quick for uh, something that would, I guess you would call power pop. It was more almost, I hate to say it, it was like you combined punk and thrash in your, in your speed. Does that make any sense?
1: Uh, it does a little bit. I think uh, there was a disc jockey in London named Nicky Horn. Uh, you might remember him. Uh, mm-hmm. He mentioned something similar in print, which was uh, you guys are on the same wavelength.
0: Yeah. Can you explain to me, I don't know, succinctly or what, what, what? You put out this amazing album. It's a hit. And then it's like you're gone. So what happened? Where did, where did you go? I mean well, you obviously I, went did, didn't go anywhere uh you, you're here you're alive but I'm just wondering what changed
1: Well I had one of the great all-time record business stories of misfortune uh uh trying to get a record deal uh, early on about after after I got out of John Entwistle's band the Ox which would have yeah. been uh, probably uh summer of 75 I started really trying to, you know, people wanted me to do my own record. So we did a a record for Chrysalis under the name of Lash LaRue, which Mm. was myself, my bass player from close personal friend, David Cochran, and uh, Chad Cromwell, who was our first drummer, who ended up being Neil Young's drummer on Rockin' in the Free Worlds, played with McCartney. He's a wonderful drummer. And uh, we put this... We did this record for Chrysalis, and we couldn't get any traction from it because disco was at its peak, and there was just not any room for – there was no power pop, no punk rock yet. So that that record kind of transposed into close personal friend. So when punk rock came about in England, I was just back in Memphis doing nothing, working as a session guitarist, and one day I got like seven record deal offers in the mail (laughs) – And then I had signed a publishing deal while I was there in 75. So the publishers had put together seven deal offers. And then when punk rock came, it just opened up everything for me. So I immediately flew to England and then came back. And then the president of Inside Records knocked on my door in Memphis one day. And uh unexpected and says, uh, I'm the guy you need to sign with. I have the number one record in England with the Boomtown Rats with Bob Geldof. <laughs> and uh, yeah. we want you on the label. I said, hey, it's, you're the only person that's knocked on my door, although I do have seven other offers. Anyways, we ended up signing with them, but we didn't have a record deal in America. So the day before... We were gonna fly to New York and license me and Bob Geldof and the Boomtown Rats to Columbia. We'd all <laughs> agreed that Columbia was the best choice in New York. The day before we were getting on the Concorde to fly over from London to New York to sign and clinch the deal with Columbia to put out the record in America, and North America. Ron Luxenberg, the president of an Epic Records was in the Ensign office in London and said, "Hey, let me hear some of your tracks." So he heard "I'll Be Waiting" off my close personal friend record, and uh, immediately said he wanted to sign me, and asked what the Columbia deal was, and doubled the amount of the advance from seventy-five thousand dollars to one hundred fifty thousand dollars. So wow. there, there uh, he didn't want. He passed on the Boomtown Rats, and uh, <laughs> and then uh, you know once things started getting going, I knew that. Uh, you know i was in a little bit of trouble and that uh that the label was doomed it was easy to tell that something was gonna crash and burn and 18 months later they uh were shut down after spending 40 million dollars on a lot of bad music groups and solo artists so uh, you know you work your whole life getting to that point and then you know all of a sudden you got this tangled up mess with the label and contracts and then they're out of business and It was very heartbreaking so i just kind of gave it a break for a minute and ended up just going back doing what i did before just being a session guitarist and kind of like being a little bit bummed out and by then you know the world had changed you know a couple of years later so i just kept doing the rj thing so that's kind of the long long long-winded story
0: it's a good story i mean it it is it, it it explains a lot i you have such an interesting background though i mean I mean, you've been, you've been, you've played with a lot of people and you, you, did you tell this, you auditioned for the Rolling Stones, what year was and, that and what, well, you've got to tell and, that story.
1: Well, that is correct. I was playing, uh, in the fall of 1974, I was in John Entwistle's band, I'd auditioned for his band in London amongst 200 other, uh, people that were trying out to play with the world's greatest bass player and, mm-hmm. uh. Who and um, so when I got the job, uh, immediately the producers and all the people around him started invite me to other sessions. So we did a record called Flash Fearless versus the Zord Women, which was a big comic book sort of uh, play, a Broadway type play production with a with a vinyl record and a comic book is a huge thing. But it had some all star cast. It had like Rod Stewart. Um, uh, Alice Cooper uh, you know Leo Sayer, of this a bunch of people like you know and then it had Kenny Jones and Bill Bruford Nikki Hopkins was doing the key so it was me Bill Bruford and Nikki Hopkins the Rolling Stones keyboard player were doing most of the meat and potatoes of the backing tracks
0: so mm-hmm. one day
1: in December we were at Wessex Studio in London and Nikki comes up to me and says hey, man, I just talked to Mick Jagger and then uh, Mick Taylor just quit the Rolling Stones. Uh, I'd like to give him your phone number. Do you mind? I said, man, you can't do that. I don't want him to have my phone number. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, I thought it was just kind of passing conversation. So uh, about a couple of weeks later over the Christmas holidays, I got a call from uh, Mick Jagger. He said, well, what are you doing uh, the first week of January? And uh, and, I said, why don't you fly over to uh, Rotterdam Holland and uh, you know, come to this hotel and we're going to do some jamming and playing. And so um, he called back again. And and, um, of course, the first time he called, I didn't really believe it was him. My uh, bass player answered our phone in our little muse house in London and said, Hey, it's Mick. He's on the telephone. Of course, everybody I knew at the time that worked for the who was named Mick. So it could have been a dozen (laughs) Micks. And so I, Started talking. I thought they were playing a joke on me on the other end, but it turned out to be Jagger. And anyway, we kind of laughed that off. And uh, he called back and says, hey, I got you a 6 a.m. flight to uh, to Rotterdam, Holland. And uh, can you make the plane? And I said, yep. So (laughs) I got there, but it didn't take long. It's only a 30 minute flight or something. By the time I got there, it's about 730 or so. so. He said, call room 401. I called, him, he goes, Yeah, we're just going to bed. Um, I'll call you about five o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, here I am stuck in Rotterdam, Holland. You know, I mean, I'm riding, rent a bicycle, I'll go out and buy a sweater, I come back and stare at the telephone, watch TV. I'm just totally wide awake, all, you know, waiting, waiting. So about seven o'clock, they called me and um, said, Come up to uh, Keith's room on the seventh floor walked in there they all uh tony sanchez answered the door this says, hey Roberts, tony sanchez he ended up writing a book about all this stuff and i'm um, in that mm-hmm. book he uh, he said the guys are in there so i walked in the room and it was just me and the four rolling stones and we just had a talk played some records i played them some of the tracks i had done and and they said well let's go down and eat and have something to eat and go over to our mobile recording studio which was connected to a big building uh, which was part of a sort of a little uh, town hall, uh, you know, kind of a concert arena, little small uh, venue thing. And the Glenn Johns was there. So we proceeded to jam for four days and did a lot of talking and, uh, you know, I played on some of the uh, black and blue tracks.
0: All right, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. It's the Perino
1: and Steyrwalt I'll Tell You What podcast. Dana Perino of The Five and Fox News political editor Chris Steyrwalt dissect the ins and outs of national politics. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.
0: You've collaborated with such a, a wide range of, of bands and musicians. Uh, what? Who would like to... Uh, Favorable or most memorable, favorite or most memorable person to work with in your in your experience.
1: I guess probably Isaac Hayes. Uh, he was kind of my first big, well, one of the first big breaks. It was about late '69, and I was you know about 16 years old, and um, and then by the time we started working, I did really turn 17, and um, and uh, started out this doing much of nothing we got a call I was actually still in school I'd gotten out of school and he had called me at my mother's house and parents my mother called the school and said you need to get home it's something important so I went home and they said you got to go to San Francisco and Isaac said meet us at the airport and we flew to uh you know San Francisco and opened up for Led Zeppelin (laughs) it was my first experience with Isaac Hayes and we uh at winterland and uh it was it was uh wild but he taught me a lot about arranging and he was just such a great talent great songwriter obviously and uh, fantastic keyboard player and just you know probably the most memorable nicest guy and, and that was a really sweet time you know with the the style the fashion the haircuts the afros the you know the kind of you know, uh, you know, Superfly era, you know, it was just a beautiful mm-hmm. time. We did the David Frost show, the Johnny Carson show. I mean, we, you know, toured everywhere. It was just great. Did a lot of recording. And you know? that's yeah. okay. So, Robert,
0: you're 17 years old and you are opening, well, A, you're touring with Isaac Hayes, which is insane. You're op- you're like your first gig with him is opening for led zeppelin in i remember winterland by the way oh hey that's in south in, in kind of south san francisco um and um and and then and then you're doing the tonight show i mean how did you now okay at that age and and the and the the, the, the the kind of lifestyle that people lead in that in that industry i mean did you go head first into it how did you keep a level head at that age is, that's incredible oh but, and wait before i answer that How did people know how good you were? Like, how did Isaac Hayes know that this 16-year-old was an ace guitarist? Like, how did that come out? Was it word of mouth?
1: Well, I was working in the mailroom at Stax. I I went there. We had a high school field trip. You know, you get on a bus, go to a factory or whatever. So this day, they said, "Hey, we're going to Stax Studio." I said, "Hey, I'm all over it. Let's go." So walking in, I, I made some homemade business cards in the art room and walked up to this real friendly black guy named William Brown, and I handed him my business card. I said, I'm a guitar player. And he says, well, you don't look like a guitar player. And uh, <laughs> I just had like H.I.S. slacks on and a tie or whatever. And, uh, and I said, no, I can play. And and uh, he ended up calling me the following week. He was the singer of the Mad Lads, who were a famous group on Stacks. And mm-hmm. uh, they had a couple of like top R&B hits and the guitar player had gotten sick for a job and he called me the very next weekend and wanted to, uh, me to come play. And so we got, this was, you know, Martin Luther King just gotten killed. The city was just kind of all up in arms. So you really couldn't have a, a black person come to your home and pick you up. So I had to sneak out of my house and go around the corner and, and, and meet the, all the, the black guys, the band and go to the gig. And mm-hmm. uh, and that's where it kind of started. And then uh, I met Roland Robinson, who was the bass player of the Buddy Miles Express, who had just gotten mm-hmm. off tour, opening up for Jimi Hendrix. And he was playing with Andy Floyd. And he said uh, we had cut some demos for Sir Mac Rice, who wrote the song Mustang Sally. And we were just on the studio one day and said, Isaac has to start a band now. Hot Buttered Soul it just gone It went gold in three weeks and platinum in five weeks and he's getting all these offers to play uh and you know and and you're in the and they were saying well we want you to be the guitar player i said well you know you got two or three other guys around here michael tolls and bobby manuel and whatever and they said no man and uh we want you and so we had a jam and isaac says man this is the guy we're taking so there that's how it kind of happened
0: Wow, that's fantastic. So I, it, now to my the earlier question, was, you know, was this over, like, it sounds, when you're talking about it now, it sounds very matter of fact, and you're kind of, you're very calm and, and like, as you're, as you're talking about it, but when you were that age, w- was this overwhelming to you, or were you so confident in your, in your talent that you knew that this just made total sense? that this was a thoroughly natural thing for you to be doing
1: yeah it was pretty natural Greg the uh the, of course the players were just outstanding I mean the band was just unstoppable I mean you know this uh, there was an all-star cast of just great and I was the only white guy in the band you know so it was uh <laughs> it was great I mean it, the the energy level these guys were putting out I mean it was like you know, across between Mountain Cream and uh, Curtis Mayfield, I mean, it was just intense. I mean, it was a power band, but a soul band at the same time, and right. uh, it had a lot of power to it. And you know, of course, we had you know some this beautiful musicians, Lester Snell, who got the Oscar and the Grammy for Shaft of, of arrangements, and still one of my dear friends today. I use him all the time in the studio, and. Uh, some of the guys have passed on, like Roland Robinson. He ended up writing Infatuation for Rod Stewart. It was just an all-star. Mm-hmm. Cast. Very similar to uh, people you surround yourself with. You know, you just got magic combo, you know? Mm-hmm. Man.
0: So I asked you, like, who was great and wonderful? Do you have any – who was the worst person you ever had to work with? You're probably not going to tell me, but I'm going to ask anyway. But is there somebody that uh, that was like – the opposite of ice
1: case. yeah well not really i mean I, I can't really recall anybody i mean um you know it, it wasn't the happiest time with the rolling stones i mean you can read all the books and see what was going on in 75 it was a little bit uh but, uh, but then those guys were just fantastic too i mean they're all just great uh lovable characters and they were so nice to me and um uh, uh incredible musicians i mean it, it's almost an enigma of how they work you know you, if you see them individually you go man if these guys get together they can't be that good and then put them all together they're just ultimately fantastic so it um uh, you know that was a big thrill and of course with entwistle you he was just great too i mean i i don't really have anything that just pops in my mind that Really, uh, sort of a bummer or a, a really hard to work with person. Or, mm-hmm. I mean, I produce many uh, new artists that are. I could tell you nightmare stories about them, but, you know, <laughs> well, but I uh, want to hear
0: one. Tell me one nightmare story about somebody I might
1: know. <laughs> well, uh, man, that that should have been a question from yesterday, so I could sleep on it. I I, I don't really. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, I did I did a session with Mark Bull, and he was, was this is. So nice as could be, Uh and you know, I guess you know, you, you're, you, a lot of this stuff you're doing in England or you're doing in New York or you you know, it's, it's a Southern guy, it's different. You come in, you got the Southern accent, I'm, you know, walking a little slow, playing too fast, you know what, <laughs> you know, it it, 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 I don't know, I guess you, I sort of learned how to be a little bit diplomatic, uh, not always when I was a kid, but you know, just kind of go mm-hmm. with the flow. So I don't really. Uh, You know, Alice Cooper—that was great. Uh, You know, just uh, um, I think the the judges were a little bit of a pain in the ass. Uh, That's about (laughs) all I can say. The judges.
0: You know, uh, I don't know why I'm not surprised. You uh, actually—you played with Mark Bolin. I mean, that's kind of interesting because he's like such a mystery. I mean, he passed—he died. uh, I believe it was a car accident, right? I think Mark Bolin
1: another 27 club he died in a mini cooper accident driving home his uh wife girlfriend was the driver who was the backup singer in his band and she was mm-hmm. uh sort of like a ex ike ed or something she was a uh, beautiful mm-hmm. uh you know black uh, backyard singer girl and uh, i think her name was gloria but that was very sad but i had um been involved a little bit with Jeff Beck recording here in Memphis. I was, you know, doing stuff around the studio where they did the Jeff Beck group solo album uh, mm-hmm. with Max Middleton and my good friend Bobby Tench, who was uh, the singer. Still talk to Bobby today, but they ended up dragging me back to England and it was through uh, that was 72. And uh, and that was, uh, I met Mark and he'd had an album I did called sandra rhodes who was uh, the singer for rhodes chalmers and rhodes it was a three-team backup uh singing group that did all the al green records a lot of the stag you hear them on this records on the radio all the time every day still and she'd mm-hmm. done a solo, record, and i played on that at sam phillips's studio and somehow mark Boland had a copy of it he was infatuated with it i don't even know how he got it so fast but you know Promo, promo records get out pretty quick, and uh, he wanted to meet me, so we ended up uh, going and hanging out and going down to the studio in London and uh, doing some jamming on the song demo.
0: You know, every it, it's amazing. I mean, you're, you're kind of like, uh, I, was, um, I almost thought of Forrest Gump or, but, or Zelig, but you seem to be everywhere where there's important music being played. Did you ever get sucked into the, like, the hard partying lifestyle, or were you pretty level-headed through all this?
1: Oh, pretty much level-headed. I mean, everybody went through the kind of hard thing, of maybe uh, seventy-nine to eighty-three or four. That was about it for me. You know, I had mm-hmm. enough. But, you know, I was definitely sort of just a uh, laid-back, you know, pot-smoking and kind of cool dude. You know, that <laughs> <I> wasn't <laughs> drinking much. I mean, I didn't. I didn't really start drinking until I was in my thirties. So I was more mm-hmm. into working out with karate and you know, jumping rope and trying to stay fit and being skinny, you know, hundred and twenty pounds. All right, <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> now I have a question for myself, a selfish question. So during um I decided to take up guitar about I don't know I don't know. I, I had a guitar for a long time and then work tore me away from it. I was making progress teaching myself guitar and then I hit a wall and I realized how I hit a wall is that you can't go on YouTube and just pick videos and play from some, like, you can learn, like, a riff, but you don't learn anything. Do you have any advice for me?
1: Uh, there's some old videos, uh, I'll try to get you some, that actually taught you how to play guitar. They're not around, much. Like, they, they when they were out there on, like, VHS or Betamax, you know, I don't know, I don't even know yeah. if they're on DVD i might I'll, I'll dig up a couple of those there was one i think from rick derringer that was very uh cool and it actually was informative you know yeah uh, but the, but the, be- the best thing to do is to find another friend and play with mm-hmm. another person you know i mean that is the best way your neighbor or i mean as many people as you know there's somebody in the woodpile that's got to have a guitar that strums on it try to get to a session a jam session and just sit there and Play Gloria until you learn it backwards, you know?
0: Yeah. You know, it's funny because the only time I've ever really learned anything, I have a friend named Paul who is, you know, I'm sure you've talked to Joni, who's my producer. Her husband plays excellent guitar, self-taught. And when I'm around him and we, we play, I learn things. But when I'm alone, I, I find myself going in stupid directions and, uh, um, and, and directions that I think I take because they're easy. And as opposed to directions that might be challenging and, and whatnot. So I see that, like, if you're with a friend, the friend could challenge you. And especially if the friend's way better, which he is, uh, then that helps, too. Because I don't think I add anything to his skill set other than maybe, he, you know, uh, it's a great way to, like, test his attention span, having a list of my noodling. What, what tell, tell me about, okay, your latest album, I'm Alive. Uh, where can people find it um, is it on iTunes and and uh, why did you call it I'm Alive as well
1: well I, I, I called it I'm Alive basically because the first track is a is a remake of a Holly song called I'm Alive and uh, it's on Burger Records which is really the probably the closest thing to a real record label out there uh, you know it, it those guys Sean and Lee that they, they just run a really tight ship it's I can't say enough good things about burger records. I mean, they we've sold a lot of cassettes. They're bringing back the cassette market, national cassette day. They're selling cassette machines. I mean, they're um, vinyl, the high grade thick vinyl. Um, yeah, but the, the record, um, it, I call it that. And, uh, a good little point on that record, too, is uh, Alan Aldridge, a dear friend of mine, who was the Beatles artist. He did Beatles Illustrated. He did the Apple Records logo, the Hard Rock Cafe logo, uh, this beautiful art. He did the you know, House of Blues logo. Uh, but he worked with Lennon and McCartney Close and uh, did the beautiful book Beatles Illustrated. He did the cover, and that was the last album cover he designed before he passed away. Wow yep yeah. so it's a, See, it's, a cool it, it's a great record it's got jimmy jameson my friend from memphis who was in the band survivor he's on two tracks i even have Mick taylor from the stones on a couple of tracks oh. i got uh you know uh this there's just some great great people on the record you know and play, and Mick taylor just plays some the best slide guitar i mean he's right there with Dwayne allman so he's uh He's just an incredible guy, you know, and it was great. I've done it, done recorded it all over the world. We mixed it down and mastered it at Abbey Road. And and we also um, mixed a lot of it in Castleford, uh, England, uh, at Chairworks. But, I mean, we, you know, it was recorded, you know, California, New York. I mean, I worked on it all over the world. Finally got it ready. And it's out on Burger Records along with uh, the 40th anniversary of Close Personal Friend. And we plan to have more product coming out uh, on that same. even the the missing Chrysalis album from 1975. <laughs> That's fantastic. I,
0: by the way, thank you so much for the cassette machine. It is amazing. It's hilarious. It was such a great gift in, 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 in the cassettes especially. But I, I would urge all the, the viewers, uh, listeners here, to go to its Burger Records. If you go to the website and um, – you got to get both records. You got to get "I'm Alive," but you also have to get "Close Personal Friend" because you just can't go wrong with that album. Every well, both albums are great. "Close Personal Friend" is like a—it's just a classic. It's just one. Of, it's a. It's a great album for for at in any era. Was it 1980 then?
1: Well, we started working on the record probably uh, technically around uh, seventy-five, seventy-six. Yeah, and right we okay. signed the deal in 77 it came out in 78 right and uh and then it and then they could just it, the the momentum stayed through 79 I think we sold a little over 200 thousand records and mm-hmm. um you know it did hit the billboard charts at 98 but by the uh, type it broke the top 100 and all the three charts, cash box and and uh, whatnot mm-hmm. but and in England as well it uh we had four or five singles in England just off the uh, record. I mean, the record was released everywhere. You know, I mean, all over Europe, uh, Japan, Inside was a monster. They had Dutch phonogram behind them. And it was just, you know, released all over in various forms, various labels. I never seen so many records, but I've been living in London the last three years and, I've been mean, coming across records I had out on labels I didn't even know existed. You know, so
0: <laughs> it was so amazing seeing you. You, uh, it was an it was a unusual concert. It was you, the Knack, and the Police. It was in Zellerbach, nineteen seventy nine, which is Ber- the auditorium in Berkeley. And you weren't announced until later, and I was like, "Holy crap!" I, I know I'm more interested in this guy than the Police, and the Police just had Outlanders Demore out more out, and they didn't have enough songs. I remember, if I remember correctly, in their encore, they had to repeat two songs.
1: And, they, and they ended up doing
0: the, the song with the blow-up doll as well. But um, it was... Uh, it, and then, of course, in, sandwiched between you, who did a great set, and the police, who were okay, was the Knack. Which were just... Like, I never heard of them. And then they exploded, I guess, almost uh, uh, two months later uh, with My Sharona. Did you ever uh, end up playing anywhere with the Ramones at all during that period? Or I was curious if you ever ran into the Ramones because you seem to know everybody, but it's just a long shot.
1: I did run into uh, Joey Ramone several times over the years. And I ran into those guys at the record plant when I was doing, finishing up close personal friend, because I finished it up mixing it and a couple of overdubs in New York. uh, And right next door to the clash. So I was there for a month and I was with the clash every day because I saw them in the, in the hallway and had sandwiches with them and ended up becoming ah. friends with, with Topper Heaton, the drummer. And when right. I moved back to England in 86, I ended up uh, playing on Topper Heaton's uh, solo record called waking up. And, um, Bobby Tinch, my friend was on that as well. And, um, who was a singer for Jeff Beck band. So, uh, yeah, I ended up, uh, hooking back up with Topper and, uh, hanging out with him and the bass player song, Paul. And, um, so I was around the clash a lot and um and love uh, the, clash. the Ramones a little bit, not not a whole lot, but I did see him. Uh one day I was walking in New York with a friend of mine and uh we, we saw Joey way down in the village and then we were up in the upper east side and there he was walking right in front of us again. <laughs> and then we, <laughs> and then we went to dinner that night and he was at the restaurant. So we saw him in three different places in New York. So <laughs> it was, uh, pretty, uh, Maybe
0: it'd be great. It'd be great if there were actually three, three uh, Joey Ramones. That's amazing. You know, the class. I, I was one of those uh, young kids that was just blown away by the class. I had everything that they put out and posters, and saw them, and I ended up becoming. No, I guess I would say friends with Mick Jones, but I ended up, I ended up having him on my show. We went out drinking. And then I, I hooked up with him in, uh, in London, and just a wonderful guy, absolutely wonderful. I interviewed Joe Strummer years ago, but that was over the phone um, roughly a month before he died, and right after 9-11, somewhere around there in the, in the fall. But uh, an incredible band. What about, did you ever meet, I, I, this is my last stupid question, did you ever meet anybody in the Cramps? Because I've always found them to be one of the most fascinating groups, but I don't know if that's your cup of tea.
1: Well, they actually did. Uh, they did some album work down here in Memphis at the studio I was working worked at for forty years, Ardent Studios. They uh, uh, they did a record here. I think Jim Dickinson produced them. A friend of mine. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah. Oh, yes, yeah, I have I, met. I have met all of those people. <laughs> <laughs> they were. I had. I
0: had. I was. I had a weird evening at Lux Interior in Toys and Poison Ivy's house. In like 2003, I was also a Cramps fan as well. I was just curious because, you know, there, are, you know, I think 75% of the band is now dead. The surviving member, Poison Ivy, is still around. Uh, Kid Congo Powers is is doing other stuff, but like Brian Gregory, who was kind of crazy, Lux Interior, Nick Knox, they're all dead. All right, I'm gonna shut up because now I'm rambling. So fans of this show have to be fans of Robert Johnson. Go to Burger Records online. Um, order is order is music right right now and Robert it's been a pleasure talking to you and I'm gonna keep bothering you and we have to get together either when I'm in LA or if I get to I am gonna be in Memphis by the way I think in um, August or September but we'll talk about that later offline (laughs) okay my brother thank you sir it was great talking to you
1: thank you Greg I'll see you soon my friend